If you have a Bible with you this morning, and I pray that you do, uh, please open it to John chapter 13. And we'll be reading the first 20 verses of John 13. And while many uh, thinkers and especially medical people had kind of hinted at it and pressed upon it throughout the years, it wasn't until the, eight, the, the middle of the 19th century with John Snow in England battling cholera and uh, Louis Pasteur in France that germ theory finally kind of came to the forefront of human thought. We now know that this is the way in which diseases are transmitted, and so we know better how we can fight the transmission of those diseases. Now, previous to this, people had tried to come up with solutions for it. They tried to think about how diseases were transmitted, why they were transmitted the way they were, and parts of those were filled with the truth and parts of those weren't. Many, having known this modern understanding, then go back and they read various passages in the Old Testament about people being clean and unclean after touching things like dead animals and, and touching various body, bodily fluids. And they say, well, what God is getting at there is that he wants his, his people to be healthy. And so he, they need to wash and they need to make sure that they don't come in contact with other people until they are clean. But that's a very modern understanding of that kind of passage. It turns out when you read through there and you read diligently through it, it, it seems like God was much more intent on talking about clean and unclean, not in terms of our physical health, but our spiritual standing in front of him. After all, the mainstay of being unclean is that you're not allowed to come in front of me. You're not allowed to come to me. So the act of washing then symbolically cleanses you to be able to come back before God. This, as many other things, is simply a picture of our salvation. To be clean before God is to be able to go into his presence, is to be able to enter into worship of him. And today, with that understanding, we come to one of the greatest passages in all of scripture about how that particular metaphor works out in terms of our salvation. In John 13, Jesus will take his disciples aside and he will wash their feet. It is, indeed, a wonderful passage about humble service to his disciples, but I trust you, it is much more than just a passage about how Jesus serves us and then how we are to serve one another. As we read and we're thinking through the passage, uh, I want you to focus on the text and I want you to find and think through what the key crux word of all of this is. There is one word that I think centers the entirety of the text in which we will use to kind of work our way through the text, so listen for it as we read these first 20 verses. John 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, 
Lord, not my feet all only, but also my head, hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of our God. As we have read through here, I hope that you listened carefully, and I wonder if you found what that key word is. It's a very small word. It's a very small word that comes at the very end of that first verse. Jesus loved those who were in the world, loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. That little word has multiple meanings for us, and we're going to note three of them today as we go through, as it talks about how Jesus loves us to the end. We'll talk about how Jesus loves us fully, how he loves us fatally, and how he loves us forever. Let us then turn to thinking through how Jesus loves us fully. The verses here tell us that Jesus loves us to the end. That, that idea of to the end can mean completely, which is kind of where we get the idea of fully from. But how do we see it played out in the text? Verse 2 is a significant verse and a very odd verse. We hear about the devil putting the idea of rebelling and betraying Jesus into Judas's heart. Now, this isn't terribly large surprise for us because we have already read chapter 12 where we read that Judas was indeed the one who betrayed him. Remember, Jesus is getting anointed and, and Judas and John, but all of the disciples are kind of upset that this incredibly expensive nard was used to anoint Jesus instead of sold to some rich person and then taken and have that money distributed to poor people. John tells us that Judas wanted this because he used to pilfer the money box. He used to take a handful of money for himself so that he could gain and get rich off of it because he was also the one who was to betray Jesus. So we already know that Judas is the betrayer of Jesus. So it's odd that John would go about mentioning that again. And what makes it even more odd is that as the remaining verses kind of get, get played out, the most important person in those verses, other than Jesus, is not Judas at all, but Peter. So he mentions Judas to draw our attention to him, but then he just drops him. And he doesn't actually pick him back up then until verse 10, where he says, Not every one of you are clean, for he knew who was to betray him in verse 11. Why not move that verse all the way down? Why front load it so that we're thinking of Judas while we go through the text? It's odd. There is a good reason for it. Imagine that you are somebody who is reading through this text the first time. 
It is easy to come to the text and think with an inkling of understanding that Jesus knows very well who's betraying him. After all, as you go through the book of John, Jesus seems to have great insight into the hearts of people. He knows who truly believes in him. He knows who doesn't. And John says more than once he knows what's in the heart of men. And so Jesus has this incredible insight. And so it's not hard to believe that Jesus knows who is going to betray him. But we're not actually told that until verse 10. We're not told that Jesus has that sort of knowledge. We're not told it in John 12. And so as this is playing out, it plays out kind of like a, a, a horror movie. And you've seen them before, where in the foreground is your protagonist, who's going about doing their business. They've got headphones on, and they're whistling or whatever. And there's a guy creeping up behind him with a knife, and you're kind of like, I don't know if you know this, but you're going to die really soon, and so you should, you should probably do something, and, and people will, will scream out, and they'll want to get their attention. They'll want them to act in such a way because their, their destroyer is right near them, and they've got no idea what's about to happen, even though we are clued in about what's going to happen. It seems to be kind of how John 13 is portrayed. Judas is mentioned as the one who's going to betray him, and, and we want to tell Jesus Listen, I, I know what you're going to do. You're going to wash his feet. You're going to humiliate yourself before him. And this is indeed the one who is going to destroy you. He is the one who's going to betray you. Do you know what you're doing? Do you know what this man is going to do to you? This washing is a symbol. It's not a thing in and of itself. It, it, it's important, I suppose, for them to have clean feet. But obviously it's symbolic. It means something far beyond simply simply washing of feet and having clean feet. It is a symbol of the very cleansing that Jesus is going to give to his disciples in being crucified and dying. And here, Jesus does something that is particularly amazing. It is a amount of mercy that we miss quite often when we read through here until we realize that John has pushed that passage about Judas up to the forefront so that we would be thinking about Judas the entire way through. Matthew 5, 44 through 45 says this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the just and the unjust. God pours out his mercy on all people he, he allows rain to come and to cover the land so that both the just and the unjust can live and can be fed and can have lives. That is a mercy of God. He doesn't need to bring rain on anybody. He can bring drought. He can bring famine. But when he brings rain, it is mercy upon all people. The same thing with the rising of the sun. We're going to have a beautiful day today by Michigan standards. Now, if you were in Florida, you'd be wearing a big parka. But here, we're going to be in short sleeves because it's going to be a beautiful day. And we recognize that is a mercy from God. We also recognize that those little rays of sunshine don't just travel around on people who are righteous, but it falls on the unrighteous as well. God's mercy is shown to people because he, he gives it to all people. So Jesus, in verse 10 and 11, lets us in on this secret that we kind of already knew, but he's very clear. After, after he's washed their feet, he lets us know, I know exactly who all of you are. I know the one who will betray me. We, we think that Jesus is, is washing the disciples' feet and, and trying to display what he wants them to go out and do, but there's something else going on there as well. Jesus is not just washing the feet of his disciples. He's washing the feet of the one who will betray him. That is an incredible mercy and grace 
on the end of Jesus' hands. Knowing who will betray him, Jesus doesn't keep back the mercy of this sign from him, this sign which tells Judas precisely what Jesus is going to be able to do for him. It's like Jesus is saying, Judas, I know what you're about to do. I know what Satan has put in your heart. I can cleanse you from your sin. I can make it go away. Why will you die, Judas? It's like God pleading with Israel and Ezekiel. Why will you die? Why will you run from me? Why will you continue to annoy me and to rebel against me and to keep me at arm's distance? If you would come to me, I would, I would make you live, Israel. Why will you die? And Jesus, when washing his feet, is once more acting out in tremendous mercy to Judas, showing Judas what he is willing to do for him. I will humble myself. I will serve you. I will give you cleanliness everywhere. Jesus knows that Judas will betray him and yet still shows the fullness of his love by not keeping anything back from him. This sign, Judas is not worthy of. He is not worthy to have the picture of what Jesus is about to do for him given to him. But Jesus does it anyway. There's something else that I think is interesting and helpful and important to see here. You wouldn't see it because of the way that this is almost always translated. In English, we don't talk about people pouring stuff into somebody else's heart. But in verse 2, when it says, During supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Jesus, or excuse me, into the heart of Judas. That word is, it's conjugated differently, it looks different, but it is the exact same word of what Jesus does with the water. Satan pours into the heart of Judas this idea of betraying, betraying Jesus. At the same time, we read just a little bit later, Jesus does something for Judas as well. And he pours out water to cleanse him. Satan acts only to destroy Judas, to destroy Jesus, to cause as much harm and as much pain as he can. And Jesus always acts in ways that are for the good of people. And even though his destroyer sits in front of him, even though the one who will betray him is there, he pours water into that basin just as Satan poured water into his heart, that idea into his heart. Jesus pours water into the basin to cleanse him. It's not as though Jesus doesn't know that this isn't going to happen. He knows that it's not going to fix the problem. He knows that giving the sign to Judas isn't going to change anything. Look at verse 18. He's very clear. The scripture will be fulfilled. He who, is, who, he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He knows that the very one that he is sharing bread with, one of them, no matter how wonderful the sign is, the reality is not going to be with him. He will give him the mercy of the sign. He will not condemn him to not know that mercy, but at the same time, even though he's pleading with him, he knows that he will not know the mercy, which makes the mercy all the greater. He is merciful even when it won't matter. Psalm 49 is interesting. 49 verse 9 reads this way, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It's a psalm of David. Verse 10, which John doesn't give us, is all the more interesting. But you, Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Jesus has no doubt that Judas is going to stomp on him as it were. He will lift up his heel against us, which again is an odd turn of phrase because it seems exactly the opposite of the way heel in salvation is used as we think back to something like 
Genesis 3.15, where he talks about God and, and cursing the snake, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The snake will bite at his heel, but that snake will get its head crushed. Jesus says, my enemy is going to lift his heel against me. But he says, and there will come a time when I will be raised up. No doubt from the grave, Jesus would add, and I will repay him. I will do precisely to him what he has done to me. Only when Jesus strikes, he will not just bruise one, he will crush it. He will crush Satan, he will crush death, he will crush all those who stand against him. And all the more amazing is that this one whom Jesus knows will never repent, will never ever come to a knowledge of the truth, still he is merciful to him. Jesus loves us fully. He loves even those whom he knows will rebel and hate him. He loves them fully. He gives us all that we need to see him for who he is. He gives us all, even today, a sign of his power and his love for him. So if you don't know this God, there is still a chance. As the book of Hebrews says, that is why we call today, today. So as long as it's called today, you have a chance to repent. God is incredibly merciful and Jesus loves us fully. But Jesus also loves us fatally. The word end most naturally means that something comes to a stop or a conclusion, and that is most clearly seen in the death of Jesus Christ. It is a little bit odd here, though, because there's actually nothing in the text that really screams about Jesus' death and his crucifixion. There are a huge amount of very small clues that come to us, though, that make us think that this is actually a picture, not just of Jesus serving us in some sort of general sense, but of Jesus serving us by dying for us on the cross. First, John leads off by mentioning that this is the Passover. After we have the triumphal entry, during the Passover, Jesus is having a meal with his disciples, and given that John expects that we have read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, if not all three, and that John is simply trying to supplement those things, he assumes that in his leading you here, what you expect when it says, during supper, you expect the next words to be, he took some bread, and he broke it, and he handed it out. But that's not what John writes. This isn't a passage about the Lord's Supper, even though you probably expect it to be, especially on first reading. If John has anything about the Lord's Supper, it is way back in John chapter 6. The fact that he's mentioning the Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper puts in our mind clearly the idea that we are expecting Jesus to talk about his death and resurrection. After all, that's what the whole Passover lamb meal meant. The Passover lamb was the lamb that was slain in Egypt and the, the blood applied to the doorposts so that the spirit of death would pass over those who were inside that house. This is precisely what the New Testament says happens to Jesus. Jesus dies for us so that when his blood is applied to us, death passes over us. This is why we hide in the bread and in the wine. His body is broken, his blood is poured out, and that is symbolic for what the Lord's Supper means to us. John is using that and saying, that is a good picture indeed, but I have something else to show you. If John's gospel is meant to supplement the other gospel, then this particular, particular ordinance of the Lord's Supper is not pictured in the same way here. John wants to show us not just about the sacrifice of Jesus, but what that sacrifice does for us. Another pointer that this is meant to be symbolic 
in some way of Jesus' death is the fact that John makes a point of saying that Jesus takes out off his outer garments. It seems like a small thing. But again, he doesn't have to do this, and John doesn't have to record this, and I would submit to you that very few things in John are there simply because John wanted to give something color. John is probably the most symbolic writer in all of scripture. If you don't believe me, go read the book of Revolution. Revolution. <laughs> That's Marx. Don't, you, don't, you don't need to read, read Marx. Uh, you can if you want to, don't believe much of it. Uh, uh, the book of Revelation would be a better book to go to and see how, how fully symbolic that book is from beginning to end. This is the way that John writes. The only other place we read of Jesus having his outer garments taken off in the entire book of John and the entire corpus of John is in one place. That one place is when the soldiers take it off of him in order to cast lots for it when they're crucifying him. It is a clear picture of him being prepared for his death, which he is now doing as he washes their feet. Even Jesus' explanation to Peter points at this. When he says in verse 7, Jesus says, What I am doing now you don't understand, but afterward you will. There's two explanations for that which could possibly be the case. Afterward being, you don't understand what I'm doing, but when I'm done washing your feet, you will. It is hard to imagine Peter coming to the end of the foot washing being like, I get it now. Feet are super clean. This is awesome. What he means by afterward there is almost certainly after his death and resurrection because he doesn't even mention after what. It's got to be something that is incredibly important and incredibly well known. Again, pointing at his death. The foot washing then is meant to be a supplement to the picture of the Lord's Supper. Not just that Jesus is our substitute dying in our place, but that he will cleanse us. To help us better explain it, let's turn to this, this time of, of consternation between Simon Peter and Jesus. Simon asks him in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus again answers, he says, you'll understand this eventually. Peter then seems incredibly reluctant to allow this to go on, and likely not simply because he's ticklish. He knows that this is an incredibly humiliating thing for Jesus to be doing. And frankly, all of the disciples are probably quite aghast at the fact that Jesus is doing this. There is almost nothing in the ancient world that is more humiliating than cleaning someone's feet. This is why John the Baptist, when talking about his relationship to Jesus, says, I'm not, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals Untying somebody's sandals and working with somebody's feet is about the lowest job you could possibly get. It is hard to imagine a job that is lower than that. That's why John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to do even that. And why Peter is frankly aghast at the fact that Jesus would drop to his knees and would wash Peter's feet. Peter cannot stand it and he won't let Jesus be abased that way. And Peter says to him, you will never wash my feet. Peter can't see beyond the symbol to what lies beyond it. And we know that there's importance that lies beyond it because Jesus holds nothing back from him. And he says, Peter, brother, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no place with me. This isn't, this isn't a symbol that you get to reject or accept as you so want. I'm not offering you a piece of advice that, that you can take or you can lose as you whim. If you don't let me cleanse you, I can do nothing for you. 
I've got nothing for you. Peter accepts it then. He says, well, listen, if, if that's the case, why don't you wash all of me? Wash my head, wash my hands, wash my feet. And Jesus says something that is kind of, kind of, kind of odd. He says, well, you don't need that. You're, you're clean. And then he, he gives an explanation, which is a really good explanation for why people need their feet washed, but not a good explanation at first blush for, for why it is that Jesus only needs to wash our feet. He says, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, which makes perfectly good sense. When you get in the tub, you scrub up, you're all done, you're perfectly clean until the moment that your foot hits the ground. And that is especially true, not only in my bathroom, but that is especially true in the first century. Imagine how dirt gets everywhere. There's no stopping it. And, and you can cleanse yourself in the water, but the second that you get out of that tub and you put your foot on the ground, immediately your foot is dirty. There is no stopping that. It doesn't even matter if you leave your sandals there so you can slip your feet into them because your sandals are filthy as well. There's no way to keep your feet from being gross and disgusting. And so Jesus says, you can walk around for a bit after you've taken a bath and you can be completely clean, but your feet will never be that way. You cannot walk in this world and keep your feet clean. Now, to kind of help understand this, when Jesus talks about taking a bath, the imagery that has to come forward to us, that has to pop into our mind, especially because we're a Baptist church, has got to be one of baptism. We put people in the water and we bring them up. And now, a great deal of the symbolism of baptism is the idea that you are being placed into Christ and being taken out with him. You're placed into a medium where you cannot survive and you are then brought back to life, as we say, to walk in the newness of life. So you are dead and now you are alive again. But there's other symbolism going on there. The water is a beautiful symbol because it works on two different levels. It is a level of being united with Christ in a death like his. But it is also a picture of Christ cleansing you of washing your sin away. Now, I want to be very clear. It's not that baptism cleanses you. Baptism can cleanse you, I guess, if you're dirty and you, you get into the water and then you kind of scrub your hands in the water before I dunk you in it and then you come out. Maybe that will cleanse you a little bit, but it can't cleanse you before God. Baptism is a symbol of what Jesus has done to you through faith in cleansing you. Again, the picture works. It's a picture. It's not the reality. Peter, Peter, talks about this in 1 Peter 3.21 where he says baptism, which corresponds to what happened to Noah, is, is what saves you. It now saves you, which makes us all squirm a little in our seats, right? Because baptism doesn't save us, and we want to correct Peter, which is always, always a bad choice. Let Jesus correct Peter. We don't get to correct Peter, okay? <laughs> so now saves you, but notice how it saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, not because it literally physically washes you, but it saves you as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. It cleanses you. It cleanses your conscience. So having been fully cleansed by Jesus, however, you eventually have to get out of the pool. right? I know that we keep it warm. For those of you who have been baptized here, you know that that water is nice and warm. But eventually, you've got to get out of it. 
Now, I know that if a seeker-sensitive church ever hears that, they're going to start thinking about putting hot tubs in their worship services, and that's going to be awesome, and people will never get out, but eventually you've got to get out, and you've got to walk through the world. So Jesus has cleansed you. He has made you clean, but what's the idea? As soon as you get out of that baptism, you put your foot on the ground, and you are dirty again. You're always going to be dirty. You, you live with your flesh in the world. You're always going to be dirty. Your flesh simply attracts sin in the world. Your mind is pressured by the world to think. Your flesh is pressuring you to act. Your soul is pressured to believe in a certain way. And this makes you dirty, it makes you filthy, and it makes you rancid. And there's no way to get around that. Paul in Romans 7 says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It is the fact that his flesh simply attracts it. It is magnetic in the world, as sure as your feet are going to get dirty stepping out of a bath. Your walking in this world is going to lead you into sin. So what do we do? The Old Testament regulations and sacrifices covered this problem. It's not that the sacrificing of bulls and goats didn't get you forgiveness. We shouldn't think of it that way. God is quite clear. If you do this, you will be forgiven. The problem is, as the book of Hebrews continually points out, year after year after year. Because the underlying problem was never gone. The underlying problem was always there. As the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. They can cover it, but they can't take it away. And eventually, because you're never fully cleansed, you're covered, but you're not cleansed. It's not removed from you. You always have to go back for more, and you've got to go back for more, and you've got to go back for more. More baths, more baths, more baths. Jesus is saying that what he is about to do on the cross is better than that. What he is going to do on the cross will clean your feet. It will keep you from being dirty in the world. That when you walk in the world and you have sin, you come back to him, clean. You find yourself in your mind perverted by the world, you come back to him, clean. You go out in the world and the pressures of the world lead you to sin, you come back to him, clean. He continually reforms your mind. He continually reforms your soul. He continually reforms your heart to make you clean so that you will be completely clean and clean indeed. That is precisely what happens to us when Jesus washes our feet by dying on the cross. Psalm 24 asks this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. How do you get clean hands? Different body part. No one walks in their hands. I know it ruins the symbolism. I'll talk to God about it one day. But nevertheless, <laughs> you have clean hands because Christ has cleansed you. You get clean hands because he has, he has made you clean. And what Jesus is telling them here by using this beautiful symbolism of you can get clean in a bath, but you can never clean your feet. He is saying, I will clean you completely. He loves you fatally. He loves you enough to die for you to make you clean and clean indeed. Thirdly, Jesus loves us forever. Peter's retort to Jesus, saying you'll never wash my feet, is quite honestly not taken by many people to be temporal. He doesn't mean like, not this minute or the next minute or the next minute after that. It's, it's a rhetorical device that you and I use all the time to mean, no, 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 that's, that's never going to happen. There's not a chance of that happening. But there's a good reason why we should think of it as, as implying a time, whether Peter means for it or not. 
He says, you will never wash my feet. Loving you to the end cannot possibly stop when Jesus is crucified. When Jesus says he loves you to the end, it does mean that he loves you enough to die for you, but he loves you still, even now and even today. He loves you to the end of all things. Peter says, you will never wash my feet. At no point in time ever in the future will you wash my feet. And Jesus says, I will wash your feet now and forever. This one washing will stick. It will be good forever. Jesus' love will never fade or go away. This is highlighted again in that important verse in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I'm going to tell you, if you have the Father and you have the Son, you have the ones who give life, you have the author of life, you have those who will hold you tight and close through all things. There is no chance of anyone removing you from that love. As Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Jesus loves us fully, he loves us fatally, and he will indeed love us forever. But our text doesn't really stop there. Jesus, thankfully, does this beautiful thing where he turns to them and says, this is also for you. He washes their feet, puts on his outer garments, and resumes his place, which if I were more into allegory than I already am, I would say, sounds a lot like after he is crucified, he ascends back to the Father, But I won't say that. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right to do that. But what does it mean for you to call me teacher and Lord? It means that you are to go out and do exactly what I've done. And I give you an example. Now, the weirdest thing about that is that we don't do this. Every other time that Jesus talks like that, we do the thing that he tells us to do. Even if it's a symbol. We do baptisms because he said... Go, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them, right? So we are to baptize in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit because he tells us to do that. We don't think that baptism actually saves. It's a symbol. He talks the same way about the Lord's Supper, which this is a picture of in a different kind of way. Why don't we do this? Well, in essence, we do. We do precisely what Jesus says we should do. We do precisely what Jesus has done. So we are to love one another just like Jesus loved us, fully fatally, and forever. The application is really straightforward. Fully, we love our enemies as we love those who love us. We do not cast judgments on who is worthy to receive grace and who is worthy to receive mercy. But we go out of our way to tell our enemies of good news that they might repent and be saved because we know the glory of calling them brother far outstrips the glory of having them crushed by Christ. So we have mercy on them. Even those who we think don't deserve it, even those who we look at as evil and wretched to the very core and think there is nothing but the wrath of God that that person could deserve more, still Jesus says, you are to be merciful to them. Even if they reject it, even if you know they're going to reject it, be merciful to them. Love them fully. Secondly, we are to love them fatally. We love one another, especially in the church, by constantly reminding one another that Jesus died for us. Because we're going to forget this. We're going to forget that he washed our feet. We're going to walk around the world, we're going to get sinful, and we're going to think that Jesus has cut us off forever. So we need people to stand up and to look at us and to say, no, you don't understand, you're clean. Repent before the Lord and he forgives you. 
we remind ourselves that Jesus died for our sins. He didn't die for our goodness. He died for our sins. And that he is more merciful than you can imagine. Your sins do not pile so high that his mercy is never more. He is always more merciful than you are sinful. He is always more gracious than you are evil. And you are sinful and you are evil, but he is better than you. So we remind one another. We gather together and we hear the gospel. We live in one another's lives so that when you sin, we forgive. When you sin, we have the right and the privilege to do precisely what Jesus does. And as you confess and repent to us, we can look at you and say, you are forgiven. By the power of God, we say you are forgiven. You know that thing that Catholic priests do? Absolving people? Friends, that's what you do. We are a priesthood of believers. We look at one another with the keys of the kingdom of God, where he says, I will give you the keys. What you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. We look at Jesus and he says, those who repent and believe in my name have been forgiven. You come and you confess. We say, by the power that God has given us in the gospel, you are no longer held accountable for that sin. You are forgiven. You are freed from it. We love one another fatally. Finally, we love one another forever. We are bound together through the reception of Jesus and the Father. He, he keeps us together. Friends, when we gather together as a church, we don't gather together because we have similarities. We don't gather together because we're some sort of weird cowboy church, which is a thing, which is a weird thing. That's not, that's not why we gather together. We don't gather together because we, we have a certain kind of food that we like. We don't gather together because we, we are fans of a certain kind of football team. We don't gather together for all of these ancillary reasons. We gather together because we have been bonded together by the blood of Christ. What we have in common in the end, we might have those other things in common, what we have in common in the end is the blood of Jesus Christ. And because that is what we have together, we have to love one another forever. We talked this morning in Sunday school about Jonathan and David beautiful passage in 1 Samuel 20 about the covenant that they make two chapters earlier really being put to the test. Jonathan has the upper hand in every way over his friend David. He, he honestly has everything to gain by not acting as a friend and everything to lose by acting as a friend. If Jonathan, who is the prince over Israel, is not going to help David, then he has guaranteed to keep his kingdom and to prove David wrong. If he helps David, who is his friend, he likely will lose his kingdom and or he will get hunted down by his crazy father, Saul. The world would scream at Jonathan. You need to make the right choice here. The right choice is to turn your back on David. If you turn your back on him, you can get away. You can have a kingdom. You can have all the worldly possessions. There's only good, no bad. There's no downside to this particular risk. There's all risk on one side and all reward on the other. Take the reward side, Jonathan. But he doesn't. He helps his friend. He helps his friend to his own loss. He helps his friend for no earthly and apparent reason. Why? First Samuel chapter 20, verses 23 and then 42. The Lord is between you and me forever. Verse 42 says, The Lord shall be between me and you, 
between my offspring and your offspring forever. The reason why he can't is because the Lord is between them. I remember as a kid getting those like finger trap things, right? You stick your fingers in there, and they're made of fabric so that when you start to pull them away, because that, I'm gonna do math thing on you here for a second, because the cylinder's getting longer, it's gotta contract, and so when it contracts, it pinches down on your fingers. Now, if you make it really well, there's only one way that you can remove your fingers from those, and that is by doing what? Ripping it in half. And when we hear that the reception of Jesus is what binds us together, the very words of Samuel become real. We are united together, David, says Jonathan, because the Lord is between us. So the reason why we have to love one another forever is because the Lord is always between us. What we have in common is the Lord. And so for us to fall into disunity or disfellowship is not just a normal pattern in the world. You realize why Paul puts that up to and above at times the most heinous of sins. It's weird. Go read those sin and vice lists that Paul gives. Disunity and disharmony and disfellowship is way up there. And why? Precisely because of this. Because in order for you to pull your fingers apart, you've got to, at some level, break that finger trap. In order to have two people who claim to be Christians removed from one another, has to remove one of them from the Lord. It means that one of them has broken their fellowship, not just with another human being, but with the Lord. It has to be sin. Either someone is repenting and someone refuses to forgive, or someone has sinned and refuses to repent. Either way, there is disfellowship and disunity, and there is a severing of their relationship with the Lord, which is why it has to go on forever, why we always have to come back and forgive. We have to come back and speak the gospel to one another. And the reason why we can do this is precisely the reason why Jesus can. Notice what he says. After we get this message about Judas, John helps us to understand what's going to happen, what strengthens Jesus to go through and do this incredibly humiliating thing to one who will reject him and even do this incredibly humiliating thing, this great sign of love to all of these disciples who aren't going to get it. Verse three. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus can humiliate himself because he knows God will lift me up. Jesus can debase himself and give everything away because he knows that all things are his. Do you want to be equipped to love like Christ? Know your inheritance in Christ. You can give everything away. Every ounce of reputation you have, you can be as humble as you can possibly be and God will lift you up. You can give everything away in love. You can live in a way that seems debased to the world like Jonathan. You can live as a fool before the world and righteous before God because in Christ God has given all things into your hands. And you might not have come from God, but friend in Christ, you're going back to him. Because Jesus has loved us forever, we love one another forever. Because Jesus has loved us fully, we can love one another fully. And because Jesus has died for us, we can not only live in service to one another, but we can remind one another of that death continuously. If you know these things, if you have experienced them, live that out. If you haven't, again, today is a day for you to repent. You are not promised tomorrow. Whether it is coronavirus or a bus, you're not promised another day. 
For those of you in this church who have experienced it, let us rise up and walk in the power of that sacrifice. Let us proclaim good news with boldness and sincerity, for Christ has loved us much, so let us love one another just as much. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who unifies us with you, redeems us from the enemy, reconciles us with the only God who is worthy of us giving our lives for. Your love is unfathomably deep. It is impossibly wide, and it never fades or withers. Empower us, empower us to love in the same manner as Jesus Christ our Lord has loved us. Let us do this so that your glory in Jesus Christ might be known to the world. We pray for this, for our good and for your glory. Amen.